This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here at Matt Myers, National Editor for MLB.com. We're going to talk about a couple things today. Uh, we're going to talk about a cool new stat we have to talk about. A base runner, about foot speed, which would be really cool. We're going to talk about barrels, and maybe we're seeing some more of them from some interesting sources. And uh, we're going to start off, I think, by talking about a uh, maybe lesser-known starting pitcher who Matt wants to make the case is somewhat of a off-brand version of Clayton Kershaw, which is extremely high praise. So first of all, Matt, hello. Second of all, Matt, please tell us why you like Robbie Ray so much. Uh, Robbie Ray fascinates me because he's sort of like the, the, uh, the poster boy this, year, this year's poster boy for, for FIP, Feeling Independent Pitching, you know, which is basically uh, ERA. It's a version of ERA that is based, both based uh, on strikeouts, walks, home runs, and is on the ERA scale. So basically it kind of tells you what a pitcher is succeeding at that's within his control. Last year, um, Robbie Ray was, had a 4.9 ERA, but his FIP was like, I wish I had it in front of me. Yeah, so I, was, I remember last year uh, Sam Miller wrote for ESPN, I think, about Robbie Ray, and he talked about how like the multiple different kinds of wins above replacement all thought he was a completely different pitcher. Like if you looked at the the kinds of the kind of war, like baseball reference war that just looked at runs allowed, well they saw his four ninety ERA and they thought he was a pretty lousy pitcher. And then if you looked at Fangraphs War, which uses the FIP like you talked about, they're like, Oh, tons of strikeouts and not that many walks. He's a really good pitcher. And then he looked at I think baseball prospectus war and it was kind of in the middle. And it was one of those cases where it's not like Mike Trout, everybody thinks he's great. It's like, is this a good pitcher or not? He's, he was kind of all over the map. In yeah, some sense. Yeah, in, in Fangraphs War, I do know that he was 29th in MLB last year, most qualified starters, um, which isn't, like, amazing, but, like, for a guy with the 490 ERA, that is pretty amazing. It tells you that, like, he was pitching, th- in theory, of what he can control, he was pitching much better than you would expect. And lo and behold, this year, he has been probably outside of Kershaw and Scherzer, as good as any pitcher in the National League. Um, he's, he's, he's been fantastic. Um, 2.6 here... ERA, he's striking out uh, exactly one-third of batters, walking only 10% of batters, Um, and really a big reason why the Diamondbacks have been as good as they've been this year with one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. Yeah, I looked at uh, expected weighted on base, because that ballpark, you know, it's not exactly a great place to pitch in, so some of the outcomes are a little higher than what he maybe deserves. Uh, Last year, he had a 318 expected weighted on base, uh, which was roughly league average. Uh, That was 99th out of 256 pitchers, so a little bit better than average, I guess, if you look at all the other pitchers, but not that great. Uh, this year, that's down to 291. That's 35th of 191 starting pitchers. So a lot of those guys are in the AL, as, as you mentioned, but he's really become a lot better, and I think part of it's because they suddenly have a lot better framing this year. We talked about this with that guarantee. Uh, Mathis is way better than Castillo, but it's also because he's got a new pitch, and his new pitch is a curveball, and as you, I think, wanted to point out, it's really, really good. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's like last year he sort of toyed with it. He threw it like you know, 5% of the time. This year he's throwing it, you know, more than 15% of the time. And if you go with uh, swing strike percentage, uh, minimum 25 uh, curveballs thrown, um, 
He's in the top 10, uh, 45% of the time, gets a swing strike number one on that list, John Lester. 56%, 56, the other names you see on that list. Uh, Kluber, Kluber Arietta. I mean, Kluber, these are Arietta. some good names. Exactly, <laughs> some interesting names. Um, and then his slider, which was sort of his bread and butter pitch uh, before this year, uh, he was. he's also in the top 10, uh, top of that list. Max Scherzer, number two on that list. Wait for it, wait for it. Luis Perdomo. Luis Perdomo, <laughs> number two uh, on slide. Don't give up on another solid out the other night. And a fun Luis Perdomo fact of the week. Uh, here we go. Second triple this season. He's the first pitcher with two triples in a season since Dontrell Willis in 2007. I, I knew you were so excited to get that out there. But on this list of swing strike rate for sliders, uh, Robbie Ray is, on, is ninth on the list. But you know, Scherzer, Granke, Carrasco, Sonny Gray. I mean, these are some really impressive names. And also Luis Perdomo. And, and that's sort of why – the reason why I kind of mentioned uh, – the, the, the Kershaw-liked profiles, because Kershaw is this lefty who comes with a big fastball, at least as, as far as lefties go, um, doesn't throw quite as hard as he used to, but then also really goes heavy on curveballs and sliders. You know, it's not like he's not, he's not the fastball, breaking ball, changeup guy. He's fastball, two breaking balls. Uh, Clayton Kershaw, the last time I looked last week, was leading the majors among starting pitchers in terms of percentage of breaking balls thrown. That is, if you combine breaking pitches over as a percentage of all pitches. And Robbie Ray kind of fits that profile a little bit. I'm not putting him in this in Kershaw's, Kershaw's class in terms of dominance, but as far as left-hand pitchers go with a similar sort of um, repertoire in terms of usage, and you know he is in that second tier in terms of dominance this year, Robbie Ray is in that, that second tier of starting pitchers this year. And if you look at the Diamondbacks last year, the rotation, clearly not very good. This year so far, they are fourth in weighted on base and second in expected weighted on base. I mean, there's no way around that. That's been a very good rotation, largely because Ray took a big step forward and because Zach Granke looks a lot more like the old Zach Granke than he did last year. And so if the Diamondbacks are going to go anywhere, that rotation's a big part of it. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because everyone talks about the, the, the Rockies oh, how do you pitch at cores and all the ways you sort of have to figure out how to prevent runs at cores. And obviously, uh, Chase Field is not Coors Field, but it is one of the hardest places to prevent runs in baseball. So, like, the fact that the, the Diamondbacks are su- succeeding sort of with this, this pitching, this run prevention model is, I feel like, kind of an underrated storyline uh, relative to the ballpark that they play in. I mean, for me, the biggest takeaway here is you see a guy with a 490 ERA, don't just look at that and move on and say, oh, he's terrible. You have to actually kind of look under the hood and say, well, what's going on there? And you see a guy like Robbie Ray was getting a ton of strikeouts. There was actually reason to believe he would improve, and I'm pretty sure I had him on my breakout pitchers list at the beginning of the year with, like, John Gray, who got hurt, uh, Paxton, who's been incredible, and uh, Stroman, I think, which maybe that one hasn't worked out so well. But anyway, Robbie Ray uh, on Matt's new favorite pitcher list, and he got to mention Luis Perdomo. So it's been a good afternoon all around. Before we move on, a quick moment to talk about the MLB Pipeline podcast. Big week for them. Uh, they focused on all things draft and prospect related. So their draft and prospect gurus, Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, joined Tim McMaster each week to talk about what's going on in the universe of MLB's future stars. Obviously, the draft is just this week. So if you want a full breakdown of this week's draft, Jim and Jonathan will have you covered with an analysis of a slightly surprising selection at number one overall to really all the other steals and head scratchers. So do search for MLB Pipeline and iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Let's get back to StatCast for a second and let's talk about barrels. Right? We've been talking about barrels a lot, but I think we found something interesting about barrels. So a quick reminder, if you're new to the show, you don't know what a barrel is. We've defined this as the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. Obviously, you need both of those things to have success. And what we've defined it as are the batted balls uh, based on those combinations that are likely to have a minimum of a 500 batting average and a 1,500 slugging percentage. 
those are just the minimums to get in the door. The average of those batted balls is more like 820 and 3,000. It's like the best possible thing a uh, batter can do. Obviously, if you're a pitcher, you want to avoid them. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how many of them we're seeing. So in 2015, in the first season of StatCast, we saw 5.3% barrels per batted ball. So of all batted balls, 5.3% of them were barrels. And that goes to show, I think, how rare and special they are. 5% is not a huge number. Last year, 6.2%, kind of a sizable jump. This year so far, we're up to 6.6% of barrels. And I think that's really interesting because obviously a huge story. Everybody's always talking about more home runs. And there's a lot of different, I think, reasons that go into that. But if you look at this, I see more guys who are hitting more perfect baseballs, right? I mean, that's got to be a part of this. Yeah, I mean, I, although it's possible that um, Cody Bellinger accounts for, for the problems <laughs> <laughs> himself. But, uh, no, you're, you're right. The, this is all part of, you know, whatever you want to call it, the fly ball revolution, yada, yada, or the air ball revolution, as Mike likes to call it. It all goes together. This is, a, you know, a concerted effort to try and basically hit home runs or essentially barrels. Yeah, well, I think it's a couple different things, because you're right. I mean, like I said, you have to have two things to get a barrel. You have to have a great exit velocity, and you have to have a really good launch angle. So, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about getting the ball off the ground, and that's a big part of it that gets the launch angle. But you also have to hit the ball hard, right? A weekly hit fly ball, it's off the ground. It doesn't really matter. And what's one of the best ways that you can do that is by not making contact with terrible pitches. And I think we're seeing guys get a little bit better about this. I remember, you know, like 10 years ago, I would watch the Dodgers every night and they'd give $45 million to Juan Pierre. And Juan Pierre never struck out. And he was celebrated for that. But what did Juan Pierre do? He'd reach outside the zone because he had great hand-eye coordination. He had great contact, no doubt. But he'd reach outside the zone and he would just tap weekly hit balls to second base. And you could say, well, I didn't strike out. That's like, great, but what did you do? Like, how was that helpful? So we kind of ran some numbers this morning, and uh, I want to preface all of this by saying when I say inside the zone and outside the zone, these aren't the numbers you see on fan graphs. We have kind of more extra detailed zones that we've come up with uh, that you can find on Baseball Savant. So that's, that's the zones I'm using here. If you look at, uh, for example, swinging outside the zone at these really bad pitches. Now, completely unsurprisingly, contact has gone down for the last several years because strikeouts have gone up. Contact has gone down everywhere for the last couple of years. But over the last two years, swing percentage outside the zone has gone down, which says to me guys are not going after these lousy, unhittable pitches as much as they used to. And then when I compare outside the zone swing percentage to inside the zone swing percentage, it kind of mirrors each other pretty closely for the last couple of years. But from last year to this year, in-zone swing percentage has gone up by like a point and a half, and outside the zone swing percentage has dropped by like a point and a half. And you might think to yourself, well, what's a percentage point? Like, who cares? It's a couple of thousand swings per season. Like, that's a big deal. I, I think guys are, are learning to get a little bit smarter about, about plate discipline because you know you can't really make solid contact if you're, like, reaching across the plate to get something off the tip of your bat. Right? Yeah, I think it's a variety of factors. I think it's one of it is preparation. Players have a much – they are much more well-versed in pitcher tendencies. So they know, okay, one-two count. I know what this guy likes to throw. Like, I know if, you know, if it's likely to be a break – you know, I, I'm looking breaking ball – I can identify it. I can let it go if it's in, in the dirt. The other thing is I think that, and this has been going on for a long time, but it's even more clear now, is hitters aren't modifying their swing. They're not shortening up in various counts. They're saying, basically, this is my swing. I'm going to take my swing, and if I miss, so be it. And that they don't care if they miss, which is, from a strategic standpoint, the right thing to do. Whether or not it's the best thing to do from you know, a spectator standpoint, that's a, that's a different question. Well, you nailed it exactly. Like, smart baseball and visually appealing baseball may not be the same thing. But that's, the, I think, the one thing that annoys me the most when I, I see a broadcast and they kind of decry the increasing strikeouts in baseball. And I'm certainly not for strikeouts, but what most of them kind of fail to add is that it's okay if you gain something for it. It's not just adding strikeouts if you're adding more power because you're trying to hit the ball hard. And, that, and that's like Jake Marisnik, Matt Holliday, guys we've talked about. 
they're uh, they're striking out a lot more, but they're also a lot more productive because they're making better contact. And it's really that's what matters. It's the overall production, not how you get there. And I think this, you know, in terms of plate discipline. If you look at these numbers from the last two years, just compare what happens when you make contact inside the zone and on the fringes as compared to outside the zone. If you're inside the zone, uh, that's where 98.3% of home runs live, by the way. So that should tell you something right there. More swings inside the zone, and you're wondering more home runs. I mean, that's part of it. Uh, inside the zone, 275 average. Outside the zone, 116 average. Inside the zone, 458 slugging. Outside, 149 slugging. Exit velocity difference of 88.3 to 77.3. If you're a hitter, Basically, the worst thing you can do before two strikes is to kind of reach out and make terrible contact. So we did a lot of work on this. This, this actually took some effort. I had, to, like, I had to corral Tom Tango and some friends before we got to this. Yeah, Mike wrote a piece about this today, and there's a great example. And you can, you know, there's a video with it of, of, of Joey Gallo. And basically, it shows a, a Joey Gallo at bat where he was, you know, I guess he was up 2 0. It was a 1 1 pitch. One and, one. And, and Mike Fires threw a terrible curveball in the dirt, and Joey Gallo goes after it, and he whiffs. Uh, and that's actually a good thing because if he makes contact with that pitch, what's what's going to happen, right? It's going to be a ground out to first, and he swings through it, lives to fight another day, and then the next pitch is a, a hanger in the middle of the zone, and it ends up in the left field seats. Like so, striking swinging through that actually helped him a great deal. And I will use this opportunity to share my Joey Gallo fact of the day. Here it is. is my, <laughs> I had to get it in here somewhere, uh, and Mike led me to it, which is after his home run last night, Joey Gallo now has 18 home runs and 13 singles. There's only been three times in Major League history where a qualified hitter has more home runs than singles. Mark McGuire in 1998, Mark McGuire in 1999, and Barry Bonds 2001, who had 73 home runs and 49 singles, which is insane. What a weird time we're living in. <laughs> uh, so Joey Gallo is in, you know, like, and you watch him swing, and it's like, there's no reason to think he's going to end up with more singles than home runs when you watch him hit. So, assuming he qualifies for the batting title, I think he's going to join that group. He's he like the most all-or-nothing guy. Like yeah. he's either going to miss terribly, or he's going to, you know, crush it. Uh, real quick before we move on, so we we did some work here. I was interested in what would happen if you actually went outside the zone to make contact, right before two strikes, because obviously it's two strikes. You got to stay alive. I get it. But before two strikes, if you go outside the zone to make contact. Are you better off making that contact, or are you better off swinging and missing? And so this actually took some effort. Tom Tango and our, and our friends helped us out here. And what we found is, uh, and this is going back over the last decade, basically since the beginning of pitch effects, uh, if you are in a, if, if you have one strike, it's zero and one or one and one, you're actually better off making that contact because if you miss it and you get down two strikes, and then you're really at a disadvantage, the pitcher's going to kill you. But if you are up one zero or two zero or three zero or three one, and you actually make contact outside the zone, you're costing yourself like 80 points of weighted on base. And I, I forget the example I used this morning was something like you're turning yourself from Chris Bryant into D Gordon, basically just based on that. Uh, and that is huge. If you can not make contact with that pitch and you don't have two strikes yet, by all means, please don't, you'll be so much better off. You know, I was, I, I was uh, talking to my brother-in-law the other day and he was saying how like his nephew and he's like in like little league and how he gets self-conscious about striking out. So he's like started shortening his swing because he doesn't want to strike out. And he was, my brother was telling me how he was trying to talk him out of it. I was like, you know, you got to tell him even the best players strike out like once a game, you know, <laughs> barrels. Uh, so I got to start him young. Yeah, my son's almost two. I can't wait till he starts playing Little League and going against everything his coach wants to teach him. Let's talk about something really new, I think. This is cool. Uh, we introduced over the winter, early in spring or whatever it was, uh, sprint speed, right, for, for outfielders. And it's a way to measure really how fast they're running. And instead of using miles per hour, we defined it as feet per second in a fastest one-second window. For a variety of reasons, feet and second are metrics or units that just make a lot more sense in the context of a baseball field. So 
we did that for outfielders and we thought it was pretty cool because at the time, well, looking back on 2016, the top names on the list were Buxton and Billy Hamilton, which is great. It's like, you know, you obviously want to have the guys you expect at the top of the list because if they're not, then you wonder what you did wrong with your metric. So we did that and uh, that's been interesting. But what we didn't have was any way to do uh, other players yet. And starting next week, we will. And this will be uh, live on a leaderboard on BaseballSavant.com we are going to have sprint speed for base runners. And it functions exactly the same way. And I'm very happy to report that the average for both is actually the same, 27 feet per second, which is going to make things so much easier for us. Uh, that's the average across really all, all baseball, 27 feet per second. And that is a kind of on a range between 30 feet per second is basically elite, and 23 per second is kind of the, the lowest of the low end. So uh, I have a quick update for the outfielders here, but then we've got some infielders to get to. And, uh, and really, not even just infielders, just any base runner. There's some interesting stuff. So top outfielders right now, Byron Buxton, not surprising. I should say the uh, this is actually going back over the last calendar year. It's not just in this season. Uh, Billy Hamilton, not surprising. You know, Andrew Tolles, Kevin Kiermeyer, those guys are you'd expect on the list. I was really shocked to find very highly on this outfielders list now, Aaron Judge is on this list because you don't think of him as a fast guy. You think of him as a monster of a man. But then it, it, it's kind of interesting because we'll get to this in a second. He doesn't rate very highly on the base runners list. He's actually got the biggest discrepancy of anybody because if you think about it, the speed correlates extremely well. Guys who are fast in one are generally fast in the other, except for Aaron Judge. And I'm trying my hardest to find out why that is. I think it might be maybe he's not so great at cornering on the bases. He's such a big guy. Maybe he gets up to like you know, linebacker speed or whatever in the field. I don't have an answer yet. But I, that's like the biggest thing that stands out to me. Get to the bottom of it. Yeah, well, we're working on it. So uh, if we look at now just all base runners, right? So any position, uh, the top base runners are pretty similar. It's interesting how many of the fastest players in baseball tend to be outfielders. Because I look at the top 10 on this base runner list, and only two of them are infielders. So the top 10 base runners are uh, Byron Buxton at 30.4 feet per second, Billy Hamilton at 30.2 feet per second. I should say this is new enough where I can't really say that I know there's a difference in 0.2 of a, a second. When you, when you say 30.4, this is their average of their... This is, we're not just talking about, this is not their top time. This is, no, what, we you're call, right. this is what we call competitive It's time. the average of a, 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 max, a max effort. Yeah, time. I believe it's the average of the, the top 5%. Because right, you're right. We don't really care if you're jogging out a pop fly that doesn't really tell us anything about anything. So, correct. The average of their top 5% uh, over the last calendar year. So we have enough sample size. That's what this is. So Buxton, Hamilton, number one, number two, completely unsurprising. And if they weren't there, then this wouldn't pass the smell test at all. Number three was an interesting name, I thought. Manny Margot, center fielder for the Padres. It does seem like the Padres keep coming up as being extremely interesting. Like we're the unofficial show of the San Diego Padres somehow. Uh, number four. Blame me for that. Well, I mean, you didn't do Manny Margot. Number four, Gerard Dyson. That makes sense. We've talked about him a lot. Uh, our first infielders, uh, guys we didn't have any numbers for earlier in the year because they weren't outfielders pop up on the list they are tied Trey Turner and D Gordon which this, is great that makes this, perfect sense this is also nice because I don't think there's any player whose speed we've gotten asked about more <laughs> than Trey Turner so now we have a good answer when people say how fast is Trey Turner we can say well he's the fifth fastest player that, we, we got asked about this so much last year and everybody wanted him to be the fastest and we didn't really have the best metrics at the time but my impression was always he was really fast but not as fast as Buxton and Hamilton and this comes out perfectly we can say he's the fifth fastest player on the bases that's wonderful. That's still absolutely elite. Uh, and the rest of the guys in this list are all outfielders. You know, Paul Orlando, who's already got sent down. Keon Broxton, we talk about a lot. Kiermaier, who's injured. So it's really cool that something, you know, passes the smell test. But it's also, you got to, like, thread the needle a little bit because you can't have a metric where these guys aren't at the top. But it's also like, great, you told me Billy Hamilton is fast. Like, I knew that. So what can I learn that I didn't know? So we picked out some, I think, interesting uh, guys. Uh, it was some standouts here. My favorite standout on the list, 
JT Realmuto, right? Catcher for the Marlins. He's the best catcher by far. He's the fastest regular Marlin aside from D. Gordon and Kristen Yelich. 28.5 feet per second. Now, remember, the league average is 27 feet per second. That's really, really good. And this is a guy I think we've always thought of as being an athletic catcher. He's great at pop time. He's probably going to be an all-star this year. Yeah, he was. The, I think he was the only catcher that stole more than 10 bases last year. He's always he's been part of why the, the Marlins were kind of like the, in like the first year of StatCast. They were sort of the most interesting StatCast team with Stanton and Ozuna and him. Like They had all these different different cool stories because he's also a great pop-time guy. So uh, Ray Muto is uh, definitely very, he, very interesting. He stole as many as 18 bases in the minor leagues. So he's definitely a guy that, that kind of passes the test there. One guy I found interesting in terms of just how slow he was, Troy Tulowitzki rates really, really poorly on this, you know, 25.2 feet per second. Maybe that shouldn't be that surprising. He's got a 280 on base this year. He's got four stolen bases in the last five years. He hasn't really been an above average player and going on three or four years now. You know, maybe this is the end of us thinking of him as kind of an elite player. I mean, I guess we don't really anymore I, anyway. I, I, I kind of think that's that's but, fast, to be honest with you. Uh, he, but he's the, I mean, he's, he's I don't remember if he was the, the, the lowest rated regular shortstop here, but that was the one that stood out to me uh, the most. And then also what's interesting is the bottom of this list, right? None of these guys are surprising, but that's great. You kind of want the guys you expect to be at the bottom to be there. The slowest guys we have on the bases, Brian McCann, Albert Pujols, Miguel Montero, you know, Victor Martinez. That makes plenty of sense. That's exactly the way it ought to work. Yeah, another guy, another guy that you, you sort of highlighted as being kind of surprisingly slow is Matt Kemp, uh, who's right there in the, in the – his comps are at 25.9 feet per second are Buster Posey, Chris Davis, Kyle Schwarber. Not great. Is, no, not great. It's, I mean, and like not to not to get uh, not to be a downer, but I'm a little bit of a downer. But like you know, you remember Matt Kemp, the Matt Kemp of five six years ago. He almost went forty forty that year. He should win MVP. And you know, he was he's obviously not as big as Aaron Judge, but he was the Bison. You know, that was he was like this 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 kind of just physical freak, unlike anything you've ever seen before. So you know, it's sort of if you're you know not that you know. I'm, Ring against Aaron Judge, but you see him now and how fast he is, and you kind of makes you realize how much, you know, particularly with a big body guy, how much that can change. It's it's rare for a guy as large as Judge to be successful or, or over a long period of time or durable. I mean, we've seen it with Stanton. You know, Stanton's had 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 a ton of little injuries, uh, and Kemp. You know, it's age a little bit, but he's you know hurt his hamstring a couple of times. He had a really bad ankle injury. Like he's a lot of these injuries have taken his speed. And like you know, for, I'm completely confident that Aaron Judge is going to continue hitting mashing taters, but the whether or not he's going to you know continue showing up on our speed leaderboards, I have to imagine that's not going to last. Well, we're, we're going to get back to Aaron Judge uh, in a second. But I think something else that I found is interesting is, okay, I wanted to know, obviously a lot of these guys are very fast on the bases and they're also very fast in the field, not surprisingly. I wanted to know who was faster at one than the other because that could maybe tell you a little something about different kind of skills. So as I said, Aaron Judge is faster as a fielder than he is as a runner. He's actually pretty good as a fielder and as a base runner he's 27.3 basically league average um a couple other guys on that list and i, I can't say I have good answers as to why yet odubel herrera is faster as a fielder than he is as a base runner michael taylor faster as a fielder than a base runner gregory polanco kirk newenheis I, I think those guys are interesting there's really not a lot of discrepancies these are the only guys who show up as even with a half foot or more difference like I said, it's very well correlated. Um, faster as runners, these are kind of some interesting names. J.B. Shuck is much faster as a base runner. Mikey Matuk, much faster as a base runner. And Melvin Upton Jr. And so these are guys who maybe you think they've got great raw speed. Maybe they don't have great instincts in the outfield. I'm not really sure yet, uh, but it's exciting to find out why. Yeah, I mean, like the, the Upton's, Melvin Upton is a great example. Melvin Upton as a base runner is elite. He's above 29 feet per second. That's, you know, that's not that's basically just in the, uh, that's like in the Kiermaier range. But uh, as a fielder, he's 27.2 feet per second, which is 
like entirely league average. I wonder if it's because on the bases you're basically like, there's a straight line, go get it, as opposed to having to track the small white object that's moving. It seems like a different skill. But but at the same time, in the field, often you get more of a chance sometimes to just run as fast. You can't. You don't have to worry about oh stopping or turning. It's just like I just get. I have to get the ball as fast as I can. I think if we're proving anything here, it's that this is brand new and we still have a lot to learn about it. But I am. Uh, I am. Confirm. I am very pleased that the names on the top and the bottom of the list that uh, that's very satisfying. We are going to end the show by inducting a new player. Well, I shouldn't say that. A new play into the StatCast Hall of Fame from a player that we've already inducted. Uh, And I know we already did an Aaron Judge play here like a month ago, but we can't see the hardest hit home run of the StatCast era and not put him in, which is a sentence I'll probably say like three more times for the remainder of the season. I I mean, he had the the most ridiculous weekend last year. I think the the, the, aura around Aaron Judge... Like took a went to a whole new level last year. Did, did you notice Gary Sanchez had a great weekend and nobody really paid attention to it because Aaron Judge was doing all these absurd things? So on Saturday against uh, Chris Tillman, 121.1 miles an hour, uh, 382 feet, a 25 degree launch angle. So 121.1 is the hardest hit home run in the Statcast era. This is my favorite part about this. So he now has the three hardest hit home runs. They've all come this year at home against Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I mean, I, you know, I know Chris Tillman's not exactly having the best season. That made me laugh when I saw that. So one twenty one point one on Saturday, one nineteen point four back in April, and then on Sunday he hit one one hundred and eighteen point six. But that's not the interesting number there. Four hundred and ninety five feet, which is the second longest home run we've ever tracked. And I should point out the first longest Giancarlo Stanton at Coors Field five hundred four. So that was the longest at anything resembling Earth, right? Tied. Chris Bryant had four ninety five. Fair. Uh, at Wrigley. Uh, so, yes, it's tied for the longest non-core. And I got to say, it's pretty cool that basically that that distinction is held by, like, the three premier sluggers in the game. Like, three of, like, the five premier sluggers I, in the game. Those are really satisfying <laughs> names, aren't they? But, you know, you know, it would stink if it was, like, you know, uh, maybe not stink, but uh, if, uh, you know, like, uh, what's, what's, I was thinking, like, William Opeña had snuck in there, you know, in, like, one game and just, like, it went 485, so you'd have, like, Stanton, Pena, Judge Bryant. So there, like, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good list. The, on, the, on the top ten list of hardest home runs, there is like one very late career Alex Rodriguez home run from like two years ago. That's going to be on that list forever. Um, Aaron Judge, by the way, is the talk of baseball right now. He has a four twenty four batting average on balls in play, which is interesting because, remember, home runs do not count as balls in play. So even if you take away his home runs, he's still doing amazing. That would be the highest in MLB history through 2016. And why do I say that? Because Miguel Sano currently is running a 425 batting average in balls in play, which I guess makes me think we should be talking more about Miguel Sano, who is not getting really as much of the attention, but he probably should be. Uh, the scary thing about Aaron Judge right now, his expected weighted on base is 459, and his actual is 479. It's not a huge gap. Like, this isn't, this isn't luck. This isn't balls falling in. This is him actually just crushing baseballs and getting credit for it. He's not going to sustain this. But he's mostly earning it, right? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking about this one the other night, where it's like, if, you know... If he basically hits 250 the rest of the year and gets to 45 homers, which is almost certain, he's going to be AL MVP. Uh, yeah, and, and rookie of the year, won't he? he? He doesn't even need to like really sustain this. He basically just needs to, like, if he hits 250 the rest of the year, he'll end up hitting 300 for the year with 45 homers. And, like, that's going to win MVP. I mean, think about all the narrative around that. Mike Trout's hurt, so that's going to crush his chances. The Yankees look like they're pretty good. They're probably going to the playoffs, even though I hate that that matters in MVP, but it does, unfortunately. He's going to win rookie of the year. He's going to win MVP. Like that might be one of the greatest rookie seasons we've ever seen. Like, I mean, Ichiro did it in. Uh, Fred Lynn did it. 
and Ichiro did it in 01 in a very controversial... Well, he was like a 27-year-old rookie or whatever. Was at, the like at the time. I remember, it's funny, looking back now, it was like the early days of like these really like sabermetrics versus old-school debates, and it was like Jason Giambi. The saber guys were all about Giambi, and the old-school guys were all about Ichiro. And like if you looked at it now, I wonder if like the saber guys would be more about Ichiro factoring defense. Because if you look at war... They're basically equal, which didn't, war didn't exist. I know you long, young listeners out there, <laughs> war didn't exist in 2001, so no one was using it as a debate. They were looking at OBP. That was like OBP and slugging and home runs, which obviously Giambi dwarfed. I, I think you're right, because also you, you figure massive base running advantage for Ichiro. The war of the two if, now is like, it's like they were both like right around nine. Yeah, because I, I mean, I know that Ichiro hit 372 or something like that that year, and that was like the big flashing number. But that certainly was not the only reason he was valuable. Like there, he even hit a couple home runs. I think I don't remember the number, but he wasn't like some powerless kind of slap hitter. I mean, also they they won 116 games the year after getting rid of a Rod. So right. Sort of like, right. <laughs> obviously, he's doing. And you look at and you look back at that roster now. It's insane to look back at that roster. I mean, Brett Boone had an insane year. Mike Cameron had a great year. Like a few other. And John Larue was very good still. But like you look at the pitching staff on the team, it was like Freddie Garcia. Jamie Moyer, John Halama, and they won 116 games. It's like, how did that happen? What I like about talking about Ichiro is that you're talking about him in a pre-war context, and I'm actually, I was able to look at him this morning in sprint speed because he's still playing. He's still out there. Uh, so welcome to the Hall of Fame again, Aaron Judge. I have a, I have a feeling we're going to see you again soon. That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. With me, Matt Myers. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.